We are in Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to the disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Good to see all of you. Welcome to Disciples Church. We are glad that you're with us today. Thankful that you're here, uh, that you braved the weather and, uh, and came out today. It was a beautiful drive-in, and i um, glad that you were able to uh, make it today. Open in your Bibles, if you're not there already, to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. My name is Jonathan Mosher, by the way, and so it's my privilege to open the Word for you this morning and with you, I'm praying throughout the course of this week that God would enlighten our hearts to understand and know what He'd have us to learn um, through this text this morning. And as we've talked about, if you've been with us the last several weeks as we've begun this series through the book of Mark, Mark writes with the purpose of revealing who Christ is. He wants us to come face to face with Jesus. I remember about um, a year and a half ago, I was at a conference down in Chicago, and so as I'm walking through uh, downtown Chicago, I I saw an old Lutheran church um, off to my side, and what drew my attention to it was actually a poster that they had uh, for an upcoming event at their church. They were going to have some sort of teaching or some sort of discussion on the historical Jesus, but what actually drew my attention to the sign was the picture that they had, uh, and at least this artist's rendering of who Jesus is. Because the artist's rendering was different than anything I had ever seen before, and it really actually jumped out at me. In fact, I Googled it. If you Google historical Jesus, one of the first images that comes up is the image that I saw. You can look at that later, not in church, but later you can look at that. And the thing that jumped out at me about it was it was such a different depiction of the person of Christ. And so he, had a, uh, he looked to be a Middle Eastern man. He had a dark complexion. He had a dark, thick, um, short, kind of unkempt beard. He had dark, short, curly, um, black hair. Um, he, he, he didn't have a classic look about him. There was nothing really impressive about the artist's depiction of him, but that's actually what made him leap out at me in this poster. Because that image to me is a much more much more realistic one, I think, than the one that we traditionally have. I mean, I really don't have a lot of use for the classic depiction of Jesus. And you know the one that I'm talking about. He's standing there and he's wearing a pure white glowing robe and he's got his hands up in the classic uh, holy pose and he's got the fair faucet hair and the blue eyes and the kempt beard. He's got this very European, Western look about him. And the reason that that always jumps out at me as something that's not particularly helpful in our view of Jesus is that I think it really removes who Jesus is from what Jesus actually did. That when Jesus came, his purpose and his intention was to walk into the muck and the mire and the brokenness of humanity. And I have a hard time believing that that Hollywood Jesus would have been able to do the sorts of things that we have portrayed in texts 
like this. Because in this text, what you have is a picture of a Jesus who understands the brokenness and the mess of the world, the brokenness and the mess of the human heart and experience, and who walks into that environment with the, with the understanding that it's only through that depiction of brokenness that you can understand true and real grace. And so what we have in this text this morning is really a radical depiction in a somewhat familiar story to us. It's a radical depiction of the grace of Jesus Christ and the way that different groups of people responded to it, primarily based on their own understanding of their condition. And so the point of this morning, and if you walk away with nothing else, understand this, the point is that you cannot really understand grace until you see and understand the mess that Jesus walked into. And this text is wonderful because it reveals that mess to us in a very practical way. It shows us that radical grace of Jesus and the fact that he came to seek and to save that which was lost. And so that brings us to verse 13 of Mark chapter 2, which says this, he went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, for all intents and purposes, this seems, at least on the surface, like a very ordinary exchange. I mean, Jesus has just left, if you were here last week, just left the healing of the paralytic, uh, the healing of the leper, and it says that Jesus once again walks beside the sea. And that's actually a reference back to chapter 1, where one of the first encounters that we have with Jesus is him walking along the sea. It underscores this idea that not only was this a common means of travel, but this is also Jesus, something Jesus loved to do. I mean, one of the things that we see consistently throughout Jesus' life on earth is he loves to be in nature. He loves to be in communion with his Father. He loves those moments where he's enjoying the creation of his Father, where he can be alone with him. And so Jesus finds himself once again walking, behind, walking rather beside the sea. And as it would happen, he walks past this man named Levi who's sitting at a tax booth. So Levi, we come to understand, is a tax collector. He's situated along this path just outside of Capernaum. This was a very common path that people would have traveled right along the sea. Uh, and people at this time were traveling from one region to another. And these were two different principalities underneath the Roman government that they would have been walking between. And so Levi essentially is functioning as a toll booth worker. I mean, his job is much more comprehensive than that, but, but essentially he's standing at this place to tax people as they were to walk through. Now, tax collectors at this time are a very unique group of people because they were educated in a way that most of the population wasn't. In fact, to be a tax collector meant, meant that you had to be able to speak Greek, which was the trade language of the day. So this man in this particular instance not only spoke Hebrew and he not only had grown up in a Jewish environment that very much valued education, but on top of that, he was able to speak Greek. This is a smart, intellectual, educated man. And ordinarily in a culture like this, if you were smart and educated and intellectual, it meant that you were looked upon with favor, but he was also a tax collector. He was far from being respected. And to understand what's going on, to frame this whole conversation, I mean, this is a time when Rome had just taken power in the region. They had just come in and, and really subjugated an entire people group. And what the Romans had figured out was that in order to fund their military exploits and in order to fund their empire, obviously they needed taxes and they needed money to do it. And so they had learned the hard way that having their own soldiers go out and try to collect taxes wasn't the most effective means, that what they should really do was subcontract that work of tax collection to locals. 
Because locals knew the people, they, they had relationships within the community, they knew where the money was hidden. And so what they would do is they would, they would hire out this responsibility. People would bid on the right to be a tax collector within the region. They were actually called publicans. You can kind of think of it as someone who, uh, who was a manager of all the tax collectors in that region. And so they would pay the Roman government for the right to go collect taxes. They would put their own markup on top of the tax, and then they would hire tax collectors to go actually execute those taxes in the community. And so to be a tax collector at this time, particularly uh, in Israel, meant that you were a Jewish person who was now working for a foreign government in order to fund that government. And the way that you made your money was, as long as you had enough money to pay to the Roman government and enough money to pay the publican, anything above and beyond that that you could get was yours. And as you can imagine, this was a system that was rife with corruption. So much so that tax collectors were viewed in the same category as sinners. It's this broad juncture term, but in the way that we talked about lepers last week, where they were unclean, where they were people you didn't want to associate with, in the very same way, tax collectors were viewed as unclean. They were a despised people. And they were despised for three reasons. First, they were considered traitors. They were actively working to fund an invading force. So politically, there was all kinds of ramifications that went along with that. On top of that, they were social pariahs. I mean, these were people who had grown up with their neighbors, grown up with others in their community and, their, and in their local cities, and now were going to shake down those very same people using the information they had gleaned from years of living in that area to take advantage of people that they knew well. And if that's not enough, not only were they traitors and pariahs, but they were also sinners. They were associated with Gentiles. They were interacting in a means of trying to gain finances. They were interacting with people who did not believe in the one true God. Tax collectors at this time are considered so vile that they were excommunicated from going to the synagogue. If you were a tax collector, even if you wanted to go worship God with his people, you were not permitted. So with all of that cultural baggage at play, as Jesus is walking here, he sees this man named Levi sitting in a tax booth collecting tolls, and in addition to that, probably shaking people down for the possessions that they had with them, seeing that this particular person walking by had money, saying, I'm going to collect a little bit extra from this guy because I think I can get that money out of him. This is the scenario into which Jesus walks. And perhaps Levi was even known by the disciples that were following Jesus. I mean, after all, they're in Capernaum. It's not out of the realm of possibility that Levi might have shaken down a family member of Peter's. Or that he may have stopped Andrew as Andrew was coming back from a successful fishing trip to take some of his money as well. Imagine what was going through the minds of the disciples. I mean, just one chapter further into Mark, we're introduced to a man named Simon the Zealot, Simon who was going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, who very likely was actually walking with Jesus at this time. And that phrase, Simon the Zealot, is interesting. Because the term zealot in that context doesn't just mean that he was very excited to be with Jesus. It was actually a political demarcation. The zealots were a group of people who were anarchists against Rome. They had experienced 
the draconian taxes of the Roman government. They saw the invasion of a foreign force. They had witnessed and seen firsthand the way that their own nation, uh, na their, their own nation had been mistreated and taken advantage of and how people had been hurt and harmed and even killed in opposition to the Roman government. And so they wanted to overthrow the Roman government. They were encouraging people to take up arms against Rome. And potentially Simon is walking along with Jesus and they encounter this tax collector. Imagine the thoughts that are likely going through the minds of those disciples. See, if there was anyone that we would not expect to be a disciple, it was Levi. I mean, I read something this week that, that kind of jumped out at me. Think about it this way. Levi's whole experience um, his, his whole occupation prior to becoming a disciple was to deal with money, and yet uh, when the disciples tried to determine who was going to handle money for their little group of people, they chose Judas over Levi. I mean, think about, think about the vitriol with which they approached this man, and that's what makes what's about to happen so incredible. Because Jesus in this moment sees opportunity. He sees, he sees an opportunity for his radical grace to be displayed. His heart is so moved with compassion and love for this man who for years had not been experiencing the love of his neighbors. And Jesus in this moment invites Levi to follow him. And what you see on display in this moment is the same authority and the same kindness that Jesus consistently shows because he doesn't just ask Levi, will you follow me? He goes up to Levi and says, follow me. And imagine what must have been rushing through Levi's mind in this moment. He's thinking, me? Do, do you know who I am? Do you see where I'm sitting? Do you realize what's happening in this whole situation? You want me to follow you. You're the rabbi, the, the holy one. I've heard you preach and I've seen your miracles. Everybody knows about your exploits. What in the world do you want to do with me? But coming face to face with Jesus in a literal way that Mark wants us to come face to face with him today, in that very same way when he encounters the loving invitation of Jesus, his response immediately is, yes, and there's a lesson in that for us, because our temptation, as we're going to see throughout the remainder of the passage, is either to assume that Jesus wants us to be, wants us to be a disciple by virtue of what we bring to the table, or assumes that he wants nothing at all to do with us. But for many of us, our presumption is that we are not like Levi. I mean, we may even have a doctrine of pity that allows us to look at people like Levi and say, how nice Jesus was in choosing someone like that. I'm so glad that Levi's story is not my story. But rarely do we see our own undeserving state and fall to our knees in thankfulness that God would choose people like us. I love spending time with people who've who've experienced through the course of their life real depravity and who now know Jesus Christ. And part of the reason that I love that is 
I find that more often than not, people who've come from those backgrounds have a deeper and greater appreciation and understanding for the magnificent grace of Jesus Christ. So much so that they're not even necessarily scared to share some of the things that they've experienced because they have so profoundly understood the radical nature of God's grace. And Levi, in this moment, experiencing this scandalous grace, and I don't use that term lightly, I mean to everyone watching, they would have been aghast that Jesus had just made this invitation. But Levi, experiencing that scandalous grace, does the unthinkable. He leaves his life of luxury and follows. And in this act, we see the trust of Levi in the goodness of Jesus. Because unlike a fisherman, if things went south after following Jesus Christ, Levi could not just go back to be a tax collector again. If you walked away from your job, if you walked away from your occupation as a tax collector, you were not allowed to pick it up again. So in this moment when Levi walks away from this tax booth that he'd created, he was walking away from everything he'd known. He walked away from his income. He certainly walked away from friendships with other tax collectors, with publicans, with the Roman officials with whom he had to deal. He was walking away from everything because when you follow Jesus, you cannot continue on in the way that things were before. When Jesus enters your life, everything changes. And what ought to leap out out at us about this experience is that God chooses people that we would not expect And he uses means that we do not understand to make disciples for himself. And here's what I mean. I mean, we read a story like this, and we read the interaction of Levi and Jesus, and we think, what an odd way to evangelize. I mean, Jesus doesn't come up and begin to share the plan of salvation with him and talk to him about the four spiritual laws and how he doesn't meet up. No, he walks up to him and says, in a moment, follow me. And Levi, instantaneously recognizing the authority and the grace of this man, Jesus Christ, follows. So in my own life, here's the closest analogy I can come up with, and it's certainly not a perfect one. My parents um, became Christians in 1968. They were living in Denver at the time, and they had a neighbor lady who, over the course of several months, had been having conversations with them and then inviting them to come to church to attend the same services that she attended. And so it had gotten to the point where my parents had begun to try to dodge this woman because they were afraid that if they encountered her, um, that, they, that she was going to invite them once again to come. And so finally, uh, this, this woman tracks down my mom one day and extends the invitation again. And my mom and my dad have a conversation. And my dad's response is, well, we either need to go visit her service or we need to move because we cannot continue to have these sorts of exchanges with this woman. And so my parents, my mother grew up in a, in a completely irreligious um, home, no understanding of the gospel, no understanding of faith. I mean, um, Jesus was nothing more than a curse word in her home. Um, my, my father grew up in a, in a somewhat religious home, but not really observant Christians. You wouldn't define them um, in that way. And so for them, walking into this service and hearing the gospel preached in this moment was just a radical thing for them. But what what stuck out to my dad more than anything else as they walked away from that service was the peace that these people seemed to have in their life. And so that afternoon, my my dad went to my mom and said, I'm going to go back to that service tonight, and you don't have to go with me, but I'm going to go back again because whatever those people have, I need. And my dad having a very limited understanding of who Jesus is, and my mom having almost no understanding, left that service that evening completely transformed. See, for some of you, that's your story. 
And for others of you, your story is like mine, where nearly 40 years after that event happened, as I'm in college, having grown up in a Christian home and grown up in in the church and around this Christian environment and being able to walk you through the Romans road, I realized that God was nothing more more to me than a religious system. A method of behavior, a moralistic standard that in many ways I had been inoculated against the gospel. I had just enough Jesus that I didn't feel like I needed more. I had just enough morality and just enough religion. What do I actually need God for? And for me, it wasn't until college that in his grace he revealed those things to me. But now look at the impact of what happens as Levi leaves that tax booth and heads back to his home. Because look who, who joins him in his travels, verse 15. And as he reclined at table in his house. So now they're in Levi's house. They're eating together. They're reclining at the table. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus. I love this picture, with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So imagine the scene. They had left the seaside. They'd headed to Levi's house. They were accompanied now by a crowd of tax collectors. Undoubtedly, along the way, Levi had run into some of his friends, and he said, you've got you've to meet this guy. Come to my house. I'm going to have a party. We'll, we'll sit, and we'll talk, and we'll eat, and you can hear for yourself this man, Jesus, and his incredible story. You can meet him for yourself. And so here is Jesus doing what he loves to do more than anything else. He's eating and drinking with outcasts. With people who were rejected by mainstream society. And incidentally, this is where so much of Jesus' ministry happens. One of the reasons that we as Christians love to have dinners and get-togethers and have people over is because there is a biblical root for that. This is how Jesus does ministry. But this is also a place where no respectable teacher at the time would have found himself. Look at verse 16. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now this is the attitude of legalists and religious people. Because in asking this question, there was an assumption on the part of the Pharisees that they did not fall into the category of sinner. There was an assumption that they were inherently better, that God approved of their lives, that they had no need for grace. There was no sense of joy or wonder at the goodness of God's grace. What there was instead was a condemning question. And so to put this into brief perspective, there were 613 commands in the Old Testament. About half of those, just a little bit more, or just a little bit less than half of those uh, are things that you were instructed to do. Just over half of those are things that you were instructed not to do. And so the Pharisees were this people who, who seemed to have very sincere intention. We want to obey. We want to know God. We want to stand redeemed and, and, for, and accepted in his sight. And so what they did is the same thing that a lot of us might be tempted to do. What they began to do was create additional laws outside of the laws that had actually been given by God in order to create a buffer between them and sinners. Because there was an assumption or an attitude or at least a function in their life where they presumed that if they interacted with sinners, somehow they would catch their sin. 
And so their thought was, well, if godliness is the aim and if some laws are good, then a lot of laws must be better. And listen, as Christians, so often we try to do the very same thing. There is a dangerous tendency on the part of believers to try to isolate ourselves from people who don't love Jesus. Where we try to protect ourselves by building, by building a protective layer around our lives to keep people who do not believe the same way that we do away. Because like the Pharisees, whether we would state it or not, we don't want to catch that sin. It's uncomfortable for us. But the only problem with that mentality is that, that you're saying that still as a sinner, right? So wherever you are, there is sin by definition. So you can do whatever you want to do to try to keep people at bay there are still those internal problems of the soul. And so what the Pharisees did is they were, trying to, they were trying to create separation. They were functioning as separatists, as legalists. They were considering in this moment Jesus himself impure on the basis of their own traditions. They had allowed their own traditions and not Scripture to begin to regulate their lifestyle. And in doing so, they created relational alienation and they obscured the grace of God. And imagine what must have been going through their minds because certainly there was a curiosity that the Pharisees had about this man Jesus. And maybe they even recognized some of the good that he brought into the world. Because in hearing the preaching and the declaration of Jesus, maybe there was a part of the Pharisees that thought, well, finally, someone's bringing some energy to this party. This is a good thing. People are showing interest in God. They're showing interest in faith. They're showing interest in religion. But what they hated about Jesus was his choice of company. Because Jesus refused to allow the people whom he spent his time with to be determined by those who were standing on the outside judging. And here was the attitude of the Pharisees. We find it in Matthew chapter 11, verses 18 and 19. I'll read it for you. But Jesus is describing the Pharisees, and he says this, For John came, neither eating or drinking, and they say he has a demon. Now, to put this in context, he's referencing here John the baptizer, and he said, look, when John the baptizer came onto the scene, and he was eating this strange diet of, uh, of wild locusts and honey. And when he was not drinking any alcohol, and when he was preaching the gospel in the wilderness, you all as Pharisees looked at him and said, what a weirdo this dude has to have a demon. But then he continues. The son of man, referencing himself, came eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus says, when someone comes and they follow a particular set of dietary laws and they avoid alcohol, you look at them as if they have a demon. And when I come drinking alcohol and eating common everyday food, your presumption of me is that I am a drunk and a glutton. See, this is the heart of legalism. When they called him then a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And what the Pharisees didn't realize in that moment is that they weren't they weren't accomplishing what they had set out to do. Because what they intended to be an insult to Jesus, namely by calling him a friend of sinners, was a title that didn't seem to bother Jesus at all. 
See, Jesus, in moments like this one, was meeting the needs of the people with whom he was dining. He was meeting them in their sin, though he did not sit with them in their sin. So the question practically for us is this, are you a friend of sinners? What does evangelism look like in your life? When we hear that word evangelism, our tendency is to think about a circumstance in which we walk up to someone who, we ne- who we've never met before and where we begin to start talking to them um, about God, about Jesus Christ, about faith. And listen, um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a thing that God often um, can use. But, but in this moment, what we find is Jesus giving us a different snapshot of evangelism where he functioned as a friend of sinners. Where Jesus wasn't afraid to spend time with them. He wasn't afraid to eat with them and drink with them. He wasn't afraid to talk with them. This is instructive for us. Because what this means for you, wherever you find yourself today, is that evangelism is as simple as looking around at your life, your family, your neighborhood, the people you work with, the school you attend. And where you start to think and a more effective means about how you can be intentional in your relationship with them? What are the opportunities that God has dropped in your lap to discuss Jesus Christ with the friendships that you have? Who are the people that he has intentionally placed around you? And Acts chapter 17 would go so far as to say that the boundaries and the time in which you live, that literally the places and the time in which you live were ordained by God. So think about what that means for you. It means that every encounter you have is divine. Not just that God provides unique divine opportunities for you to minister, but that every single day as you interact and as you live and as you interact with neighbors and friends and as you go to work and as you talk to your children, you are surrounded by divine opportunities to communicate the love and the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, to communicate the gospel of Christ to those with whom you're interacting. And the Pharisees in this moment totally missed it. And what they missed as well is that God was entirely unimpressed by their discipline and their devotion. Because their discipline and their devotion depended on the idea that they were attaining for themselves what only God could provide. Verse 17, and when Jesus heard the question of the Pharisees, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And Jesus' answer in this moment revealed the flaw of the Pharisees' thinking. Because if he was going to avoid eating with sinners, he would have to eat alone. But Jesus instead says to them, I didn't come to heal people who are not in need of healing. I came to heal those who were sick. And in saying that, Jesus is not indicating that these religious Pharisees did not need healing. But rather, he was calling out the glaring issue of their life. He had just, in that statement, revealed them to be sinners who refused to recognize their need. That their own self-righteousness was just as much of a barrier to the gospel as outright wickedness was. In fact, it was more offensive and more of a barrier. 
because they found themselves like I did and like many of you may have been inoculated to their need of the gospel. And lest we be tempted to become pharisaical about the Pharisees, remember that Jesus also wasn't afraid to dine with them. But just as he didn't indulge in sin with the sinners, he was going to do the same thing with the Pharisees that he did with the tax collectors. He was going to reveal their need for salvation. So Martin Luther said it this way. He said, the absurd idea that a person can be holy by himself denies God the pleasure of saving sinners. God must therefore first take the sledgehammer of the law in his fists and smash the beast of self-righteousness and its brood of self-confidence, self-wisdom, and self-help when the conscience has been thoroughly frightened by the law. It welcomes the gospel of grace with its message of a Savior who came not to break the bruised reed nor to quench the smoking flax, but to preach glad tidings to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted and to grant forgiveness of sins to all the captives. See, the Pharisees missed the point of the law. Their presumption was, if we can take these 613 laws of the Old Testament and if we can obey every jot and every tittle that's given to us in that Old Testament, God will find us acceptable. And so therefore, what we're going to do is create a whole additional system around that law that's going to keep us so far from breaking the law that we will be found blameless before God. And in doing so, they missed the human element of why the law was given. Namely, that it was given to reveal that you could not follow the law. That you had a complete inability to obey the law. That you needed a substitute. You needed someone on your behalf to obey the law perfectly. And so in Luther's words, God had to take, God had to take the sledgehammer of the law to break down the idea that we were self-sufficient. So that in our brokenness, we could humbly receive his grace. See, grace is only good news to those who know that they need it. And Jesus just as graciously called the Pharisee as he did the tax collector. And fortunately, in God's goodness, he gave us examples of that in his word. If you look forward at the story of Saul, this Pharisee, who was a Pharisee of Pharisees, he was a man of, of high birth, amazing intellect and education, quickly rising through the ranks of the Pharisees, one who was so zealous that he was, going to, he was going to persecute the church. And Jesus Christ, in his grace, appears to, appears to Saul on the road to Damascus, asks why Saul is persecuting him. And in the most amazing example of divine election that we find in Scripture, in that moment, as Saul is on his way to murder Christians, Christ saves him. And Saul goes on to write a third of the New Testament and become the most prolific evangelist and missionary that arguably the world has ever seen. And likewise, in this example this morning, we have the story of Levi. This tax collector who was a traitor and a pariah and a sinner. This man who was a cheat and a thief. And it was that man that God in his goodness chose to write the book of Matthew. Because shortly after this account, Levi's name is changed to Matthew. He goes on to be one of the disciples. 
and to write the profound gospel of Jesus Christ in the opening book of the New Testament. And how incredible. This is the thing that jumped out at me yesterday and I'd never considered it before. How amazing is God that of all the people he could have chosen to carry his message forward to the Jews, he chooses a tax collector. The most reviled person in this culture Jesus saves and transforms and calls to be his evangelist to his own people. Isn't that just like God to do that? To take the least likely person in the same way that he took Paul, maybe the person best suited to reach Jews in this culture and says, no, you're going to be the one who takes the gospel to the Gentiles. See, God uses means we don't understand and he uses people we wouldn't expect to carry forward his will. And that is the hope, by the way, that we all have. Because we are unlikely converts. Unlikely disciples. Disciples only by virtue of the fact that Jesus Christ, in his grace, deigned to save us. This is a beautiful reminder that you are never too bad for God. You are never beyond his reach of forgiveness. And that you are also never good enough for God. That you are never so good that you do not need his intervening hand in your life. And the salvation that only Jesus Christ can bring. The picture of Jesus as a friend of sinners reminds us the same God who created the world chose to step into it and save us. And that term friend of sinners for years now, that's been my favorite depictor of Jesus, of all of the amazing names that Jesus takes. My favorite one is this, that he would choose to be a friend of sinners. And it's that name that reminds us of what we come to in the Lord's table. Because in the same way that Jesus lowered himself to sit with tax collectors and sinners, he now invites us to dine with him as those who've been forgiven and brought in as disciples. And this table not only reminds us of our forgiveness and acceptance and communion with God, but it also reminds us of our communion with one another. It points forward to a day when we will once again be face to face with him. Though now we see as in a glass dimly, then face to face, we shall know him. That when Mark, what Mark does through his gospel will be made into a reality. And when just like Matthew, having followed, we find ourselves sitting in the presence of Jesus Christ himself, enjoying his company and eating and drinking in an unrivaled feast. So as we come to this table, we're reminded that Jesus, the friend of sinners, also died for sinners. That he went to the cross and paid the penalty for you and for me so that we could be brought into his family. That he rose from the dead, giving us new life. And it's those things that we celebrate as we come to the table. And all God's people said, amen.